You're listening to Object As, a six-part series from the American Craft Podcast supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. Subscribe to the American Craft Podcast wherever you listen or visit craftcouncil.org. To find out more about how National Endowment for the Arts grants impacts individuals and communities, visit www.arts.gov. Objects fashioned by craft artists can do more than appeal to the eye in hand. They can speak to our cultural, political, environmental, and social climates. They can comment on today's issues, inspire conversations. They can be acts of rebellion. That's the point of the Object As project, for which six artists were chosen by six curators to create works that speak subtly, directly, intimately, publicly, about issues that matter to them. On this episode, we're featuring Miami-based multidisciplinary artist and arts educator, Morel Doucette. Let the conversation begin. I live in a very old Italian neighborhood, and so I didn't realize this was like the culture that like 60 year old <laughs> Italian dudes sit on corners and just shout talk at each other in the mornings with coffee. That sounds like Miami. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Great. I'm happy is, we have something in common. This and, is Miami uh, in the morning. Um, you know, coffee is a big component of Caribbean culture. You know, yeah. there's um, Cuban coffee, Haitian coffee, um, Colombian, it's everything. So yeah. it's a big staple. And there's a lot of conversation that happens in the morning and they're loud, you know? They, they are so... And I live above an Italian <laughs> restaurant. So, you know, it's like moth yeah. to a light. You know, the guy that owns it sits outside and then he'll be there and he will just be... <sighs> Sometimes I'm like, guys, I want to sleep in on a Saturday. <laughs> That's really funny. I can't wait to see that. Okay, Morel, I am so excited to be able to have this conversation with you today. Um for listeners, can you say your full name, uh, share your pronouns with them, and uh, then we'll jump into our conversation. All right. Awesome. So my name is Morel Doucette. In English, in Haitian Creole, you can pronounce it Morel Doucette. Um, I am a local artist based in Miami, Florida. Um, my practice is multidisciplinary. Um, I work across ceramic, um, illustration, drawing, writing, um, to tell stories about the impact of climate change, migration, and displacement um, happening around the global diaspora. Um, When I'm not an artist, I am a full-time museum educator where I oversee the school and tour program at the Institute of Contemporary Art Miami. And I've been working as a museum educator now for 10 years. Um, so with your childhood, did you spend your childhood in Miami or did you spend it in Haiti? So I was born in Haiti. Um, mm-hmm. My parents got political asylum in the early 90s. And so around 1993, um, we left Haiti. Mm-hmm. And then we were dropped in Mobile, Alabama, 
<laughs> we lived there for six months. Yeah. Um, you can imagine it was a complete culture shock. Um, yeah, and your parents were like, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, um, and then after six months in Mobile, Alabama, they m- relocated down to South Florida and have been there for over 20 years. Um, I would say, you know, for me, um, you know, as a young adolescent, the environment around me was the signifiers in my kind of culture understanding that was no longer back in Haiti. And so even though I cannot quantify a lot of things, but I knew we were no longer at at home because the yeah. the trees around me started to die, the sun disappeared, the sky became gray. And so that's how I kind of formed my understanding of this change that was happening. Yeah, by your environment. Mm-hmm. Were your parents creative? Are they artists? Um, I would say... To a certain extent, yes, I guess. Um, yeah. So my father back in Haiti was a anesthesiologist, actually. Oh, um, so okay. he worked as a doctor. And my mother was an ed- educator and specialized in mathematics. And so my mother, um, back in, in her days, would travel from different sites to teach as an educator. So I guess throughout the week, she'll have like maybe like five different um, sites she would visit across the island. Um, yeah. And then my father, you know, I think for me, I, I always feel like medicine has a little bit of artistry to it. Um, so I would say to a certain extent, he was artistic. Um, yeah. But for the for the most part, most of my family members either fall either fall into the category as, as educators. Um, we have a couple s- s- seamstress in the family as well. Yeah. And then everybody else is doing like a regular kind of like their regular hustle. Regular hustle. <laughs> I see yeah. you smile. Yeah. You're like, how do I describe this? A regular hustle. <laughs> a regular hustle. Because I feel like Haitians are natural born entrepreneurs. And yeah. everybody is kind of doing their own unique thing. Yeah. I mean, you have to be, you have to ha- think in a creative capacity to want to be an entrepreneur and to mm-hmm. have your own hustle, so to speak. Yes. Um. So you moved to South Florida. You're based in Miami right now. When did you move to Miami? Um, we so when we left Alabama, we moved yeah. straight down to Miami. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So your parents are nearby you. Yeah, yeah. So my my father mostly kind of he still have you know like the old how would you describe it? He still had a, he still had an old love for Haiti. So my father yeah. spent a lot of his time, even though we were living in Miami. Um, he spent a lot of his time in Haiti. So it really was yeah. a, it was really me and my siblings, my mother, that was mainly um here. Um, and my yeah. father would, would travel back and forth a lot between Haiti and Miami. Mm. Um, so you're creative through and through, obviously. <laughs> um, when you graduated high school, thinking about the occupations that your parents have, did you mm-hmm. feel um a responsibility or like a drive to be maybe an educator or in the medical profession to follow in their footsteps or did you immediately go creative? So for me, it was very conflicted. Um, so my advisor from high school, um, even though I know she was coming from a place of love, wanted me to go into the medical field. Um, so even though, um, so my weighted GPA in high school was a 4.45. Um, and so I excelled academically a lot. You know, that was kind of like, you know, the only control I had in my life, you know, because as as an immigrant, um, 
you grew up very fast, you know, so you're kind of going through the same experiences as, as your parents. Sometimes you're needed to translate um, documents or to be at, to, to stand in at, at a meeting for them. So I felt like, you know, growing up, that transformation happened quickly. It's just like you had to survive, adopt, assimilate, and you got to figure this out because we don't know what is this. You got to yeah. figure it out. And so because of that, um, there was a lot of responsibilities um, placed on me, especially being the oldest of two other siblings. Um, mm-hmm. And so there was like this big weight on me back in high school where I knew academically I could excel in the medical field. Um, I could, you know, I thought about becoming either like a surgeon or going into anesthesiology like my dad, mm-hmm. but my heart was not in it. Like, yeah. I was like, I felt like it was like a, I felt like if I went to the medical field, it would have been like a routine and I was not dying to save a patient. Like that was not yeah. like my ultimate and goal. you want like, your doctor to really <laughs> want to be there saving you. <laughs> exactly, you know? And yeah. so even though like I had all the ingredients um, to probably become a really great person in the medical field. Yeah. Um, I told myself that I'll take my chances. I said, let me go pursue this artistic path. If it does not work out, I'll do a year and then I'll go back and go back to, and go to medical school. Um, yeah. And if it worked out, then it works out. So I had so there was a lot of pressure on myself to excel because I did not want it to fail. So I kind of like, um, the overachiever that it was, I was like, we're gonna go all in. Like we're gonna we're gonna like dominate every single class. And and so <laughs> I went in freshman year and you know 18 credit semester off the bat. Um oh, wow. And it was a lot. Like I actually graduated with 36 credits that I did not need. Um <laughs> because I okay. took so many classes. Um because it was I was so determined to not fail. Or I told myself if you were at the table, then at least you had some kind of understanding of the conversation. Rather, it was graphic design, painting, mm-hmm. film. You had, you had, at least you had a, 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 a foundation of everything that was being discussed at the table. So you never yeah. felt left out or you could always contribute something at a certain capacity. I and love so that, that was like you all. Had... Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to. I love that you went for a very diverse skill set. That's so important and Um, something that I feel more artists should be striving for. Yeah. That's what, and that's what um, I credit that to a lot of my older mentors. So something that was very unique is because of Mm -hmm. the high school that I went to, um, which is New World School of the Arts, there were a lot of alums that had went to the same college. And so the did you mention the college you went to? I'm sorry. Can you? Oh, say I it? did not. Um, yeah. So I I attended the the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore, Maryland. Okay. And that you were there four years. For four years, yes. Do you have? So you have your um, BFA. Oh wait, mm-hmm. do you have a BFA? Is that what your degree yeah, is? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And did you go to grad school? So there's the thing. So I was gonna go to grad school. So mm-hmm. the the pipeline was you graduated high school from New York School of the Arts, you yeah. went to MICA, and then all the alums were going to Yale. That was my path. I was, like, I was like, I was like, I'm gonna apply to Yale, I'm gonna get in, and that's my next step. And yeah. then I had a friend who went to grad school the year before me, and she was just like Turn back. Said, I was, <laughs> do, do not come. <laughs> she said, if you're going to do this grad school thing, wait a year. Like experience oh. life for a year and then decide to apply. Yeah. 
That is a um, good friend. I always tell students that. Take a break. Try to know? have a studio practice. Cry a little. Like, yeah. figure and things so she out. Said, she said, turn back. Like, he said, this is not, it, it's, it's, grad school is not giving what it was supposed to give. Like, yeah. She, and she Yale, I'm assuming, moment. is expensive. So, it was expensive too. Yeah. Um, but again, but that was like the path. Like, all of, all of my mentors went to Yale. So, that was like, everybody was going. So, I was like, that's, I'm, I'm going to do that. Yeah. And so in that year, um, it's how I landed in the role as a museum educator. Okay. And I really enjoyed it. And I was just like, I kind of want to learn more about this museum thing. There's something interesting. There's innovative about it. And they're mm-hmm. changing the landscape of what teaching looks like in the classroom. And so, yeah. you know, like, you know, growing up, we had the traditional teaching model. But museums mm-hmm. were using what is called inquiry-based learning, which is essentially as the educator, you're really facilitating conversation, but the students mm-hmm. is what drives the the, the goal. The, the, so, so everything is student, yeah. So everything was student centered, and you were just really a facilitator of conversation. And so it was it was such an unusual approach to teaching that I was just like I just want to learn more about this. You know, like oh, I this love that. This like everything about this was so unique, uh, and I kind of like. I guess became like a master of this teaching method mm-hmm. where essentially you you could go into any museum, do not know a single thing about any artist in the museum. It could have a full 30 minute tour on this one art in the museum without yeah. knowing a single thing about it. Cause everything was about the visual information in, in front of you. And it resonated with me, and I wish like more teachers had the capacity to implement it in their regular classroom. But you yeah. can't, because with, with inquiry, it there's there's a buildup that happens, and so with teachers, they're very strict and bound to like testing and, and metrics and standards. Yeah. They don't have the luxury to do that in the regular classroom, which is unfortunate. And I know a lot of teachers they they have that pressure to deliver those metric metrics, mm-hmm. so they mm-hmm. can't even take the risk or the leap to explore that kind of approach because they have to deliver certain aspects aspects of that yeah so you know so essentially you know as a museum educator we're like the speed bumps of education is what we would call ourselves and (laughs) and the, the, the kids would come to the museum and we would slow down their traditional method of learning the classroom yeah it would get them to to experience art in a completely different way from what they were expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really, you know, had an incredible experience about that. And I feel like that was like my grad school experience. So I chose, yeah. even though I could have applied to grad school, I chose not to. And years later, um, you know, as my career started picking up, um, I had a lot of, you know, people say, you know, your work is great, Morel, but if you go to grad school, it's going to help you It'll be better. solidify your place in art history or give you the mm-hmm. bigger connections that you need to really enter the art world. But then... Do you, I, do you believe I, that? Not necessarily. You know, I, I feel really like, you know... I, I feel like a lot of these um, people that are saying that were coming from that traditional old style of teaching. I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, this is... We're in the 2000s. You know, how it was yeah. from to, from the 80s and 70s is different from how it is now. And there's people that are actually doing better than people that have their masters. You yeah. know, because by, 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 by the time, you know, I was like in, in like 2015, 16, like I had, you know, I started showing in, the, in museums <clears throat> and many of my peers that had their masters were still like figuring out what to do after grad school, you know? Yeah. 
Can I ask you a few questions? Mm-hmm. Um, so when you, gra- what year did you graduate? So I graduated from MICA in 2013. So you would say that your career as a museum educator has been ongoing since 2013? Yes, yes. So yeah. literally within six months of graduating, um, I was working as a museum educator. Um, yeah. and, and actually, again, going back to, this is a common thing that will happen throughout this call, the overachiever that I was, um, I actually... <laughs> yeah. um, that you know again that fear to to succeed to excel to not fail i actually got a job in baltimore um at the school 33 arts center which is um working through the baltimore office of promotion for the arts so it got mm-hmm. me a, a like a administrative job in the arts before i graduated so i graduated on a saturday and the monday mm-hmm. before i had had a, a summer job <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> so of I literally course. I walked I walked the stage got my got my degree and I went to work the next the next the following morning. That's the dream, right? You graduated <laughs> yeah. to become a working artist. Way to not <laughs> not delay a moment, you know. And um, so it, it, was a, it was such a great time, also. Um, so that was like my first job, and then you know it, it was a, a temporary summer job, and then I moved back yeah. to home after. And that's where you're at. And what strikes me about you, because of course I've done a lot of research, is that you've held on to this museum educator position. It's obviously involved. You've worked your way up. You do seem like an overachiever in every capacity. (laughs) Um, But your studio practice, you have remained true to that and developed that along the way as well, um, which is why we're talking to you today. So you, you you encompass all these skill sets and you do all these things. Do you describe yourself as a craftsperson or would you describe yourself as a studio artist or just simply an artist? I just describe myself um, as a maker. Um, so okay. my my artist model is create to serve, create to experience and create to dream. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are the three things I I go by it's kind of like my my mantra in the studio um because ultimately you know i've been very dedicated to the issue of climate change um seawater rise core reef bleaching that's been yeah. the core of my work because i deeply believe in these issues and so i found ways to evolve transform and mm-hmm. engage the global audience with these work um yeah. you know back let's say like six years ago, these topics are still very much taboo. Um, yeah. you, you can imagine in, in Miami where every, every six months, this new building popping up, you know? So there's a lot of money, capital and development happening in the city. And so if you're talking about, oh, we might be underwater, <laughs> the developers yeah. are not too keen. They're not acknowledging about, it. <laughs> they're not acknowledging it whatsoever. So yeah. it's very much an unpopular topic. Yeah, of course. So they don't work want... about. Yeah. So you, as an artist, um, as a maker, have already been using your works to create conversation, to engage the public, um, which is really at the heart of what Object As is as well. Um, and and I could so I could see why you were chosen for this opportunity. So, and forgive me if I do not say this name perfectly, but Sanjit Sethi, who is the president mm-hmm. of the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, um, this curator chose you for this opportunity. Um, do you have a relationship with that curator? Like, do you know him personally? 
Not personally, but I feel like sometime when the grapevines are past intersected, you know, because yeah. like, right now, like, honestly, like, it's not ringing a bell, but, but it sounds familiar at the same time. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure maybe um, they were present on a virtual Zoom talk I was having, yeah. or maybe it was during Art Basel, um, but there's so many, you know, like, as artists, like, you intersect so many different lives I'm pretty yeah. sure at one point we intersected. Which is one of my favorite parts of being an artist is those intersections and those connections. And also, Morant, can you please um, share with listeners the gallery that represents your work? Yes. So I'm represented by Gallery Mertis, and they're based mm-hmm. in Baltimore, Maryland. Okay. And I've been with them now for six years. And it's off possible that Sanjeet came across your work there or maybe at Art Basel. It seems like your work has been many places um and you know with object as as a you know looking at the objects that we as makers make to engage the public and create conversation um you were doing that with your work already so it seems that you were a good fit for this opportunity um which let's talk about the okay so as a overachiever, of course, Morel, you <laughs> did not just make one object. You made how many objects? You made two objects. You made two um, objects. Okay. Um, and so <laughs> with this, you chose to work in porcelain. Can you describe, well, first of all, tell listeners the title of your objects. And of course, our conversation is more around engaging in the mm-hmm. what those objects mean or the, what you're trying to share through them, but give listeners a description of what they are. Gotcha. So the first artwork that I made is called Black Maiden in Veil of Lavender in Lilac. And it's a figurative bust that have carvings on the face that draws reference from the African Ifa tradition, and it's embellished of various flora and fauna around the entire um, figure. So um, only the nose, eyes, lips are showing, and then everything else is embellished with flora and fauna. And then I have a second piece titled The Hills We Die On, Flowers for President Jovenel Maurice, and it's a upside-down head that is embellished with butterflies, dragonfly, and a few flora and fauna. And the head is, I guess you would say damaged or you could say decapitated, mm-hmm. um, is, is both, I guess, violent and beautiful at the same time. And so um, a lot of my work lives in that realm where either it's about beauty and the grotesque or it's about decay and rebirth. Um, and so this piece definitely falls into the realm of that. Um, and more specifically, um, I was interested in using porcelain because of the historical component to it. Um, you know, it's one of the few natural materials that has a unique position in our human history where it had the same monetary value as gold at at one point, it was it had um, a certain status, a certain prestige to it. So mm-hmm. it was kind of like you didn't need to say anything. If you had porcelain in your home, you knew that person had access to 
to a material that was very much limited across the global market. Yeah. Um, and then also, um, because I use a lot of nature in my work, is a way to, ele to elevate nature, um, to bring nature to that same kind of reverence um, where it's, it's important um, and we should respect it because it's pristine and vital to our survival as a humanity. Um, and for listeners, I'm just going to jump in real quick and let you know that at the time of this recording um, being released, if you do not have access to the copy of American Craft magazine that features um, Morel and the other Object as Artist pieces, there are links into the description of this podcast where you can click those and get to see these beautiful pieces as you listen. Um, so Morel, with this piece, these pieces, um, having seen other of your works, they don't seem like a complete departure from your typical studio work or objects that you have made. But with the message, can you elaborate a bit more of why you chose to discuss Moa, um, Moise within your piece? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, so I would say um, I was particularly, because um, so, so when I read the, the terms of this commission, um, mm -hmm. I wanted to do, I knew often, but I wanted to do something about my Haitian identity. Um, but I didn't know what I wanted to make. Um, and so after kind of looking like in that current event, what was happening back in Haiti, the most recent thing was the assassination of the president. Um, yeah. And so it's very fresh. It's still recent. Um, there's mm -hmm. currently still arresting people that are tied to the assassination and the plot for it. And so I wanted to have a piece that spoke um, about this event, this monumental event that's happened in our Haitian history. Um, and so for those that are unfamiliar with the president, um, essentially, essentially he was, hmm. imagine somebody running a country where your entire cabinet, Senate, parliament does not like you. <laughs> so he was the leader, but the government itself resented him. They resented him. Um, and so because they re they resented him because he was making a lot of changes from the old government that they weren't really keen on happening because a lot of these people in power are also very corrupt. And I they was going to build... say, oh, sorry. Oh, I, no, when I was reading about him, no, I have so many questions about this. And, <laughs> um, but with that, so you can think of Moise as someone that was trying to do change for good and try to Absolutely. take yeah. out some of that corruption. Yeah. Okay. So he was somebody who definitely was bringing change to Haiti. Um, and, you know, with change, not everybody welcomes change. You know, some people yeah. like how things are because they've profited from it. And so many people that were, you know, in, in, in the cabinet, Senate or parliament, however, you know, describe it, um, were not keen on these change happening. Yeah. And so a lot they became this massive plot to get him out of power. Um, and so the actual, the, I'm trying to describe it carefully. So the yeah. narrative was he overstayed his presidency because he came in kind of like as an interim position, kind of like halfway in. Yeah. And so they, so people are saying that 
even though he came halfway into his presidency, they counted that term as a full term. For even and so, one side was saying that his term is over; he needs to leave. And yeah. the people saying, "No, he didn't. He 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 has not completed a full term yet. He he's there for another year." A technicality. Um, it's interesting when I was researching Moise and this situation. Some of the media really portrayed him as an individual that was he was being corrupt in his way of trying to stay past his presidency. Mm-hmm. The way they and, were kind of projecting him like that. Yes, and so that's so that's where the the two sides became. And mm-hmm. so there are some people like you know, people that support him, like you know, let him stay. He's doing. He's he's really trying to make change happen. Other people was like, no, his term is over. He needs to go. Um, And so what happened was, you know, during that transition period, um, you know, a group of mercenaries raided his his private home and Mm -hmm. they shot into it in the middle of the night where his wife was in the home. She also was shot um, several times, but luckily she, she survived. But unfortunately... That was his final moment was in his private home when he yeah. was assassinated. And of course, it had an international shock um, yeah. where people was like, how does a president of a country get assassinated in their own private home? Um, and so when that happened, it essentially it brought, I feel like it brought the country back further into turmoil is like, you know, Haiti had been very unfortunate with a series of things that's happened to it. Um, and it's like every time progress is made, there's always 10 step backward. So yeah. my thing is, what will happen ultimately? What does change look like? Um, how can we become part of the global market? Um, you know, at one point, Haiti was the richest country in the Western Hemisphere. You know, we paid back the French what is equivalent to, I think it was like almost like $22 billion today is what we paid back the French um, after the French, after the Haitian Revolution. Um, And so there's so many things, you know, that have been thrown at Haiti and we've survived. But at this point, I'm tired of using the word resilient. It's like we know we're resilient, yeah. but how can we move past being resilient? How can we how can we become stable? How can we become prosperous? Um, and so this is kind of the train of thought that went into making the two objects that I made. Um, and so I wanted to have you know one object, of course, that told about this monumental moment in yeah. Haitian history. Um, but at the same time, I wanted to celebrate that, you know, because Haiti is Haiti because of the landscape, because of the people, um, the um, language. Um, yeah. And so so these two objects kind of became essentially these d- duality between, you know, this very like, you know, um, flamboyant, this very opulent, <laughs> over the top mm-hmm. part of what the culture is. But then within that nuance there's also tragedy um there's there's death there's destruction and so these two objects are like two like they're two different sisters or like two sides of the coin and people are experiencing both that um and so this is what ultimately that what these object as mean to me um and then on a personal level a 
kind of brought me back to my childhood a little bit. Um, I have very vivid memories of me and my grandfather, you know, um, back on the farm. The grandfather story in your statement, please <laughs> um, share. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my grandfather um, is like eighty-seven years old. Does still he still farming. work every day? <laughs> still I was working. Gonna, oh, I was gonna say, I was like, I bet he's still working every single day. Still isn't working. He? Oh, I love um, that. And you know, it's just incredible. So I, I love to say that, um, like, I come from a family of oral historians. In mm-hmm. bush medicine magician. Um, so the herbalists, like a lot of family members are are herbalists. So they have okay. a treatment for everything, like from, from migraine to stomach ache, like everything you can think yeah. of, there's a plant for it, you know? And I so that. I and so I, I've learned so much um mm-hmm. from watching them like go out and they they would find different herbs and things for different treatment. Mm-hmm. Um and I remember, you know, I was young, I was like no more than like what three or four um back in Haiti. But I always wanted to go farming with my grandfather. And yeah. so he would of course would out would outrun me or outsmart me. But the mornings where I did catch him, so he had so he had mm-hmm. to kind of figure out a way to to like, you know, to kind of prevent me from, you know, from acting a fool. We would yeah. go to like we would go like tie like the cow or the goat, which is like not too far of of a walk. And, you know, sometimes we'll go by the stream or the creek. And we just, you know, like, mm-hmm. talk about different things. Um, but um, after, you know, all that day's work, um, my grandmother would give him coffee. And I remember he would always get coffee in this beautiful porcelain teacup that was white. And mm-hmm. it was, like, embellished with, like, this French Rococo teapot. Really beautiful. And... It always stood out to me because it would be in the um, pantry. And I know mm-hmm. that was grandpa's special cup. And that was his, his coffee cup. And yeah. so fast forward to this object, um, that's another kind of component to the medium is I'm using a material that had no idea what it was as a child. But years later, I'm using mm-hmm. porcelain um, as an artist. So kind of like this full circle moment where this medium, this material from my childhood yeah. um, has become a medium that I have an understanding and a experience with as a adult. Multiple layers of significance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How's that porcelain cup? Does your grandpa still have it? <laughs> I have no idea, but probably does. A, <laughs> you a, should ask like, him. A lot of people, like, um, like most, of, most, mm-hmm. most of his things are still there. So he probably still, yeah. still has it. When, so... I find grandparents to be so special and mine were really close with me. It'd be interesting when my grandparents passed, you know, you go in their house and you have to take care of things. And I found myself really drawn to the ordinary everyday objects. Objects. Yeah. (laughs) Like my grandma had this blanket she always used when she was reading. And I was like, I want that. Um, there was an oil can in my grandfather's studio and I took that, you know, and it was like the things that have no really value, but have the most value. And Mm -hmm. I think of that porcelain cup would be in that same category. Um, as we wrap up our discussion, I do want to ask your thoughts on Ariel Henry. He Hmm. is the acting president right now. And, um, noting everybody that's listening Um, At the time of this recording, the election has not come to pass for the new president. 
the new Haitian president as of yet. And Henry has kept saying that it will happen. um, I think he's saying by end of February, the election will take place for Mm -hmm. the Haitian government. Um, Do you support Henry? Are you, if he runs? Like right now, I feel like I'm still piecing together the narrative of what is going on. Um, You know, like Henry has been listed as a possible participant in the assassination. And so so we don't know what we're getting. You know, I feel like everybody, like you can't take everybody for what, like what you see is not what you might get. You know, yeah. so we don't know. Like six months later, he's gonna be listed as one of these people that's part of the plot. Ugh, um, it's so complicated. <laughs> you know, it's it's yeah. The nuances is so layered. It's so complicated. And where, you want progress and change, but it's hard to be able you to know who to trust. It's, it's who to trust, you know. Yeah. And so it's like, do you dismantle the whole government and rebuild everything from scratch? Like, what does this progress and change looks like? Um, yeah. And ultimately, you know, this is. It's important. It's like we're we're mm-hmm. in the year 2022, and a vast majority of Haiti still does not have clean water and electrical power. Yeah. So just think for that. So it's been That's wild. It's been over. You know, it's been they've been they've been a free country for over like 250 years, and everybody else has made progress, but them. You still you don't know, have, have infrastructure. Yeah. They don't have the infrastructure. The roads are not as great as they should be. And why is that? You know? So yeah. something needs to give in order to bring Haiti into what it deserves. You know, like the first yeah. World Fair was held in Haiti. If you look at videos of the first World Fair online, yeah. Haiti was prosperous. It was thriving. Yeah. And that in the nineteen what forties. I didn't know um, that. Oh, that's fascinating. I will definitely look that up. You know? And so it's like, so so it's like, so it's not a possible, so it's not of if, it's when, really, when yeah. Haiti will make that transition of prosperity and stability. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the tools are there. Um, there used to be a train that used to run through Haiti, <laughs> you know, at a certain yeah. point as well. So all these infrastructures were there, but they were taken away. Um, again, you know, there's a lot of things that, Affected it, you know, certainly the embargo that's placed on, on the country. So, but I feel, I, I deeply inside, I believe that this change can happen, but the right individuals need to be in position. And be happen, supported by the and government. And be supportive by the government to make it happen. Yeah. Mael, it is such a pleasure to have this time to speak with you and get to share about your work with the American Craft Council's um, audience. Is there anything before we wrap up our discussion that you want to say? Did I miss anything? Um, I would say um, to the listeners um, tuning in, um, you know, thank you for for listening. Um, it's been a joy to work on these objects. Um, I hope you un understand the nuances of the meaning behind them we can also enjoy them for the sensibility and the aesthetic of it as well um i always give people that look at my work like i tell them my work is a double-edged sword is that you can it allures you and ties your beauty while reminding you of your destruction and complacency of our dying environment Oof. that is (laughs) 
That is a great way to describe that. Wow, that is a double-edged sword. Oh, Laurel. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. And listeners, um, please, if you haven't checked out the link in the description of the podcast, I suggest you do that right this moment and get to see Morel Doucette's two objects. Thank you. The Object As series is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Rachel Brown, of the Perceived Value Podcast, in collaboration with the American Craft Council and supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. Subscribe to the American Craft Podcast wherever you listen and follow us on social media at Craft Council. This program and many like it are supported in part by our members. You can support future programs and the American Craft Council by becoming a member yourself. Go to craftcouncil.org join to learn more. Thank you for being a part of the conversations. I feel like that was really good. <laughs> Do you feel good about it? I feel really great about it. <laughs>